we continue on in our journey through Job. This is the facts from the past. Uh, I can't count how many times I've said in my life, don't reinvent the wheel. And what I mean is there's no need to rethink the obvious best solution just because it's been around for a while or just to do things differently. I've used this with people in business, ministry, and with my kids because there's validity to tradition and the way things have always been done. The danger comes, though, when tradition becomes your religion, the only standard, and nothing can question it. Then tradition becomes your God, and you will follow it rigidly. You become a legalist with everything subservient to your God of tradition, and that's exactly where we find Job's second friend, Bildad, and it makes for a compassionless counselor and a compassionless friend. Now, before we jump into what is said and meant in this discourse, I kind of want to take us back and remind us of a few things about Job's friends because they have a skewed perspective and worldview. Uh, Remember this, they have a mechanical and non-relational view of God. Uh, They feel they can prove God's point better than God can. Uh, They also act, and you'll see this come out, they act as if God is too fragile to hear Job's lament or answer Job's accusations. And there's no doubt that as we move deeper into the book of Job, that Job hurls accusations against God and that they're not accurate. But the idea from the friends is that God cannot stand up to those accusations. And so you see that not only do they think they can argue God's point better, but as we move in, it seems like they're protecting God from what Job says. And as we'll see, God doesn't need them to do that. Uh, They don't listen to God or to Job and his agony. And then they're very superficial. They miss the the deeper picture. They miss that this is a supernatural battle taking place and that Job is the current battleground of the forces of good and evil. So again, keeping that in mind, this idea that they, they have a no relational view of God, God is fragile, that they can answer for God better than God can, uh, not listening you see that they're very superficial. With that in mind, let's take a look now at what Bildad said, and that's going to be in chapter 8. Now, I want to remind you that Bildad is your traditionalist. He wants to go back and see what was said before, which I said is not a bad idea as a starting point, but a terrible idea when it's the ceiling of wisdom. So understand from Bildad's perspective, you go back to tradition to find out how far you're going to go in what you understand, not as a starting point for understanding. Um, And he wants you to stick with it. He lacks the smoothness and social kindness seen from Eliphaz. So as bad as Eliphaz was, you've got someone worse in him. He comes across pretty vindictive. Uh, When we start out, he's going to say, you're a windbag and your kids deserve to die, are some of the things that he says right out the gate. So as you can see... um, and can be imagined this speech. And by the way, remember from what Job said, most likely the speech is given not facing Job because we don't respect Job. We don't honor Job. We don't think Job is right. So they've turned their back on him, so to speak. It's not going to be soft or kind at all, but it does attempt to give Job a way back to previous fortunes. An ironic twist since Job does get all of his fortunes back, but not by taking their advice. So as they say, do this, repent, and you'll get back everything that God took from you that you deserve to lose. Job will not do anything they say, but will in the end get his things back, uh, get blessed in a physical way by God, um, but not from following their advice at all. Actually, in the end, he has to sacrifice for them 
because God says, I'm going to destroy them unless you sacrifice for them. But let's jump now into chapter 8 and see what Bildad said. I'll do this the same way as with Eliphaz. I'll talk as fast as I can. You listen as fast as you can. We'll work through these chapters. Uh, Bildad starts out and answered Bildad the Shuite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things, and how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? And what he's saying is, you're talking too much, Job. You're a windbag, and you're full of hot air. That is the launching point of Bildad's speech. I found that to be very effective when I talk to people that way. You're a windbag. Anytime I tell other, you're just a hot air windbag. It's, it goes great that night, you know. Um, then it says, Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? And here's his main principle. Suffering is only for wrong, period. If you suffer, you've done wrong. There is no idea, and we'll talk about this, of undeserved suffering or redemptive suffering. And I'm going to bring this point to bear at the end of Bildad's speech, but I want you to think of it now. Bildad says suffering is only for wrong. So how does Bildad explain Jesus Christ? And think that in your mind because he has no room for a cross or redemptive suffering. He thinks that when you suffer, it's a direct correlation to wickedness. For if thy children have sinned against him and he have cast them away for their transgression, which is half of a phrase, he's saying, even though your kids are dead because they're sinners, it's not too late for you. That's five. If thou wouldest seek unto God and make thy supplication to the Almighty. It's, in other words, seek him. So even though they're dead, you need to urgently throw yourself before God. And here's the implication. There's still hope for you because you're not dead, which is not the best comfort. Then he goes on. If you're pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end shall greatly increase. And he's saying this, prove yourself pure and upright. You need to work, Job, is what he's saying. Job's already been declared righteous by God in Job 1, and he's now telling, you've got to prove it. He doesn't know about what God has said about Job, and you will be blessed. You'll get your life back and more. Then he transitions. Let's take a look at tradition, he says. For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. And notice what he's saying here. We must go back to the ancients, because they know all, because we only have a short period of time on earth, and we can know nothing. Uh, that logic breaks down. Um, it goes on, because our days upon earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? He says, let them teach us because what we can know is so brief. We're only here for such a short time. So we will go back through all of time and, and come up with our answer. And then he moves on to nature. Can the rush grow up without mire? Or can it not grow up in the wetlands, without the wetlands? Can the flag grow without water? Whilst it is yet in its greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. So are the paths of all, all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. Whose hope shall be cut off, and whose trust shall be a spider's web? He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. And so here he goes to an, a nature illustration. There's two of them. This is the negative one, and the next one is his positive illustration. And build that as just tossing this out to Job. You could be the negative one or you could be the positive one. And he's going to throw that out. The first one's negative. 11 through 15 is the papyrus would grow. It's in the wetlands. And so with wet climate, heat, and humidity, it's going to grow up about 8 to 10 feet tall. 
but you take the water away from it and it will die before you can cut it down. It's a negative illustration applying to the wicked. And that's what he explains. He says, the same thing happens to the wicked. They may grow up and look really blessed, but the second the water is removed, it's over. And then he expands on it. The wicked are falling and they're going to lean against the spider web. They don't hold you up. We know that. And then it says, go on, that you're going to lean against your house and it shall not stand. So what he's saying is, wicked people may look blessed, but at some point the water's gone and they're going to fade away. Could be Job. That's the idea. Then he goes on to a second nature illustration, which is positive. He is green before the sun. That's the opposite of the one that died without the water. And it says, and his branch shooteth forth in his garden. His roots, are, his roots are wrapped about the heap and seeth the place of stones. And there's a lot of conversation about that. But basically the, the nuts and bolts is this. Now you're in a garden. You have a healthy plant. It's spreading and becoming established. It's, it's growing so much that it's wrapping its way around the foundation stones. And if you have roots wrapped around stones, how hard is it to pull it out? Nearly impossible. So it's talking about being established And then it says, if he destroy him from his place, then it shall deny him saying, I have not seen thee. It's saying you may have setbacks and feel displaced, be unrecognizable. And that's what Job has faced, right? He's unrecognizable. He's lost everything. He says, you may be that way. But then 19, behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the earth shall others grow. And he's saying the plant's going to come back. This is the positive one. This could be you, Job. You look unrecognizable. You've looked destroyed. It looks like you have no place in the garden, but that plant's going to come back because it's not wicked, and so it's going to be good and be there. And then he kind of concludes here with his statement, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. Remember, you suffer for wrong, you get rewarded for good, till he fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing, that they hate thee shall be clothed with shame. They that hate thee will clothe the shame and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. And here is Bildad's traditionalist and simplistic conclusion. The here and now. And everything's now. Here and now. It's nothing about eternity. It's this idea of good prospers, wicked fails. So stop whining and repent. See yourself laughing and rejoicing and those against you will go away. And we're going to dive into this. Build that is all about tradition, simplicity, and work. Just do the work and get the reward. It's really straightforward. What did Bill Mad mean? Bill that is taking the simplistic approach. He has a very mechanical and distant view of God. There's a complete lack of relationship with God. God is here. We're going to do our thing. God does what he does. You work for it. I want you to realize something. That view is shared by Islam who has a very distant God, and they work, do what you're supposed to do to, to get what is offered to you. It's very straightforward. It's very transactional. And so you're just going to do this, get from God, done. It's a little different take than Eliphaz, and we'll talk about that. Eliphaz was a prosperity gospel. We serve for the things we'll get. Build that as you work, and you'll get paid accordingly. It's just hand in hand, very simple. Um, you deal with a distant and a judgmental God, unrelatable and unapproachable, a God you hope to appease by your works. His perspective is completely temporal. That means it's completely on this world level. 
everything can be and should be explained here on earth. And remember, going back, the friends have missed the supernatural. They're very superficial. And so they're very consumed with the here and now. And so for Bildad, it's all about two things. One is the past wisdom. We can never know or understand more about God than what is already known by others. We're just a shadow of time. What is known is known, and there's nothing more to know. And I want you to notice something first here. There's no developing relationship with God. So we know everything already about God that we need to know. He's a very knowable in this sense because he's distant. And so we know what we need to know. And there's nothing more to know. And I want you to remember a couple weeks ago, if you have no developing relationship, you have no relationship. And so what he's telling Job is there's no relationship to God. Who is Job crying to? And this is the main point for Job, which the second main point for Job is this idea that he's actually calling to God constantly. You don't see Job changing his focus. Job is still crying to God. The friends are hearing him cry to God and they're basically condemning that. What are you doing? There's no relationship there. He does his thing. You do your thing. There's no connection. So first he says there's no relationship. It's all about past wisdom. We can't know God any better. We can't get closer to God. What's done is done. And then I put notice the fallacy in logic. If every generation said we can only know what the past generations know, at some point you're running out of generations. Let me give an illustration. If I said that what my great-grandfather, grandfather, or my dad knows is all of knowledge, is encompassed in those three generations, it looks like I'm relying on three generations of wisdom. But what if my dad says, hey, I'm relying on past wisdom myself, and so he doesn't have any new wisdom. He just relies on past wisdom. And now my wisdom is now two wisdom, two generations deep. And if you, you recognize, if you follow through with Bildad's logic, at some point you run out to one generation of wisdom. Because if it's only been done before and it's all we can know, it's only what they've said, only what they've seen, we're still limited down to one generation. There's no growth at all. And there's a closing down of, of an ability to grow in our relationship with God. And if you look at that from the Christian perspective, we cannot grow in our relationship with Christ. We cannot become more like Christ. That's not possible in Bildad's logic. We know God, distant, and we do what we do because that's the work we have to accomplish. Beyond that, Bildad is also about immediate retribution. If you're right, you're rewarded now. If you're wrong, you're whipped or wounded now. So right, reward, wrong, wounded. Look at, look at the rush or the papyrus. It grows fast and it might seem okay, but it fades fast without water, just like the wicked. Wicked people will end up relying on things that will not hold up, spider web and their own house. But on a good note, now we have the plant that's in the garden. It's going to make it in the sun. It might have some setbacks, but it's all going to come back to it. And that's the hint of hope to Job. You've been pruned, but you're not dead like your kids. So you can stop lamenting and instead be repenting. And you can get, and really from Bildad's perspective, gain it all back. What's the action step here? And I want you to realize something about Bildad. Bildad is a preacher of work salvation. You get what you deserve. You strive to please the distant God, and that God will take care of you. That is, many religions have this idea of a distant God that we serve. There's no relationship with that God. He's up here. You do the things that he's telling you to do 
to gain his favor. I've, I've compared it again to Islam, though they do think to the afterlife in their perspective, but they have a distant Allah, their God, little g, their idol. They do what Allah's prophet has told them to do in the Quran to the best of their ability to achieve the rewards. There is no relationship with Allah at all. There is just doing to gain this. It's a very much a worker's reward. Bildad also has no room for undeserved suffering. No one suffers unless they've done wrong, and so there is no redemptive suffering. And then there's no space or reason for the cross. There is no undeserved suffering. That means there's no redemptive suffering, and then there is no need for it even. We don't need Jesus is what Bildad is saying. Pause a minute and think about it. If Bildad is looking at Christ on the cross and he's talking to Jesus and he's watched him get whipped and beat and dragged through the courts and then carries his cross up and then he gets plopped up to be executed, how does Bildad speak to Christ in that moment? When you believe there's no undeserved suffering and there's no redemptive suffering, then he looks at Jesus Christ and he says to the Savior of the world, you deserve that. And the only way God could deserve that is if he'd been sinful. And I want you to realize that in his work salvation, there is no cross needed. Why? Because you can earn it. And the second you can earn it, you don't need someone to provide it for you. And that's the danger of that whole theology. What I find fascinating is you have a prosperity gospel and you have a work salvation. And this is one of the earliest books written going back the furthest in time. And we already see the lie that's still propagated today. That's repeated today. Satan doesn't change his methodology. You see, Bildad's faith lacks grace and gives no comfort because ultimately when your comfort or your counsel neglects Jesus or has no savior, it can do no good. And so here's the question as you look at Bildad and we shift to Job's response. Is your comfort and your counsel, no matter what the situation or need, showing Jesus or negating Jesus? Is it elevating Christ and pointing to him? Or is it saying, well, that's just another side note and let me tell you what you need to do. See, Bildad has pushed away the cross and redemption. You don't need it, Job. You work for what you get. Your kids are gone because they're bad. That's simple. They died because they're bad people, but you're alive and you can, you can get it all back. Just work. It's a very mechanical view again. God is distant, no relationship, and we earn our own salvation. Now, with Bildad's earthly retribution as the backbone of divine justice, and re remember that, he's linking this to God. This is what God does. This is how it works. Simple which is the direct opposite of what we're being taught in Job, it's no wonder that Job feels the need to respond. And so now we move to chapter 9 and 10 of Job. And I want to mention this before we start. We read 32 through 35 because Job is floundering at the end with options. And that's actually option number three. And the daysman is, is the arbiter or the advocate or the mediator that Job is starting to reference. So actually in chapter 9, you get a glimpse for the first time of Job turning his attention in the right direction. All the rest of what he writes is Job, in essence, sinning with his accusations to God. He's becoming pretty belligerent 
and he's hurt. And so you're going to see him lamenting and crying out. And there's some interesting things to see there, and we'll talk about it later. But one, note this, Job is still crying to God. Job is not turning away from God. He's just articulating the fact that he doesn't understand what he's going through. It's not to condone it, but it's to, to understand that it's a very natural response that we go through, that, that we're going to see this happen. And the other thing to notice is that God is big enough to handle that accusation. God's reputation is not ruined by what Job says. Because God is bigger than Job, and his purposes are greater than that. And that's what we see at the end of the book. God teaches Job that. But just know that we're walking through, we're going to encounter a lot of comments from Job. And they're not necessarily accurate descriptions of God. They're just the expression of a, of a, a real believer crying to his God in complete misunderstanding. And it gives us a picture of what oftentimes suffering can do to us and how it can blind us to who God is and what he's accomplishing. So Job dives in and says, then Job answered and said, and by the way, verses one through four, Job still wants to be right with God. And that's a critical thing. Though he's going to flounder around and fling accusations and, and, and in some ways look like a, a toddler given a tantrum and sometimes a broken person lashing out in every direction, he still wants to be right with God. That comes through everything he says. And that's a critical thing. Where's your heart's direction? His words are going all over the place, but the, the, the center part of who he is is still seeking a relationship with God which is the opposite of what the friends are saying. They're saying there is no relationship with God. And Job is saying, I have to have a relationship with God. Now, in the middle of what Job says, you see him adopting some of that non-relational view of God. So you see how their advice and his pain have worked in his, in his mind. But ultimately, he wants to be right with God. I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? And, and he actually starts out by agreeing with Bildad. God doesn't pervert justice. And even with Eliphaz, how can a man be just with God? So he's not like he's just as belligerent to his friends. He actually agrees with them. But the fact is they're so wrong, he's going to start talking now. It says, if he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered. And so in verses three through four, Job is saying this, if we went to court, and this is the idea of a court coming in, if I was to argue my case, and we look at lawyers and all the tricks and twists they play and how they work the jury over, courts in the ancient time was built on what you would say. So your ability to articulate your viewpoint against the other persons and the person who could explain it the best, that would be the person who won the argument or the case. And so Job says, if we went to court, which Job wants, he could never answer back to God. He's recognizing something. I want God to come to court, but I realize that there's not a one in a thousand chance that I could stand next to God and articulate what I'm feeling and him not make me look ridiculous. And there's some truth there. There's some humility there that we all need. There's so many people saying, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God. You're not going to tell God anything. And Job realizes that. That's what he's saying right now. There's just no way. I want to be in court but there's no way. When you look at the judgment seat of Christ, we're not sitting there talking back to God. He's going to reward us. He's going to tell us how it is. And so there's some truth here, though the context is a little different for Job. Then verses 5 through 10, Job starts talking about who God is, but he's, he, he puts a twist on it. So he says, God is powerful and sovereign, but he says he, he's arbitrary. 
So Job is wrong because he's in this moment saying God is all powerful and all knowing, but he's also just doing whatever he feels like doing. And what he's pointing to or hinting at is his belief now or his doubt in relationship with God. Because he's saying God has no relationship. He just does what it's that distant view that build that and Eliphaz have been pushing. So you see the weight of his friends on him. He says, which removeth the mountains and they know not which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun, and it, sh- and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars. And what he's saying is God can reverse creation. He's emphasizing disorder. Mountains are going to move. Foundations are going to shake. It's going to be dark. The whole idea is instability. You can't trust God to keep anything steady. Because God can move a mountain when he wants to. He can shake the foundations. He can make the sun not rise. He can make it dark. And everything sounds like disorder. And then Job switches to God's majesty and control, which alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. By the way, he's saying God made the heavens. And then he's just accused God of being chaotic. God can shake the mountains and make everything horrible. And then he says he can tread upon the waves of the sea. And that literally refers to God is going to actually make order out of chaos. So he's, he's not right in his head. I want you to see how, how broken he is because now he's pointing to the fact that God brings order, which maketh a bunch of the stars and the chambers of the South. I let Darren read that. You know, I forgot to throw that in there. God made and set the constellations. He says that he, he made this. So first he doesn't let the star shine. And then he made all the constellations in the star and it works out perfectly, which is a truth that God brings out at the end. He says, I made those. I put those in their place. You didn't do it. I did it. And see, Job is already acknowledging this. So he goes from God is making disorder out of order to flipping around and saying, God has made order out of disorder, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. And so here is Job crying out to God saying, you're making life a mess. And then flipping around and saying, you've made everything perfectly. God's greatness and majesty on display, but he's using this as proof that he'll never be able to respond to God because he says in 11 through 13, God is invisible, which he is transcendent and makes a negative application from it. Lo, he goeth by me and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. What Job is saying is God comes and goes and I can't see him. But here's the interesting thing. He's saying, I don't feel like God's around. He makes a negative application from who God is. God is not a man that you're going to dump him down and you can constrain him to space and time. You cannot do that. God says that. But that's not a negative. That's actually a positive. But Job then says, I can't see him and I don't feel like he's around. I don't think he's here. God's invisible and and I can't even get close to him. And I put here, many people in suffering feel that way. They feel like God's missing Where's God? That's what Job's saying. He's gone. I don't know where he's at. I can't feel him. Behold, he taketh away. Who can hinder him? Who shall say unto him, what doest thou? And you can think about what Job has lost and his children. And Job is saying he can take someone away and no one can stop God. I can't even stop him and say, hey, hey, do you really think you need to take all my kids? Do you really think you need to do this? He said, I can't even talk to him. He could do whatever he wants. And so what you have is Job recognizing a truth about God. He's transcendent, but he's applying it in a negative way. I don't feel him. He's not there. I I don't have any sense of what's going on except for the consequences 
of him passing by. If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. He says God doesn't, doesn't take back his anger. The proud helpers, by the way, is a reference to workers of Rahab. And some translations will list workers of Rahab, which was a sea monster in the pagan religion. And, and the pagans around Job would believe that this Rahab sea monster brought chaos. And so Job is saying this, God reigns unfettered above any so-called God that's out there. Not only can God do whatever he wants in reality, but if you believe otherwise, if you buy into a pagan faith and he's just dealing with the culture around him, he's saying he's over everything. He treads them down like they're nothing. They stoop under him. They are subservient to him. Nothing can be done without God's control. And so he is seeing God's power and majesty. But again, it's the negative outlook. And that happens with pain and suffering. We start seeing the negative side of who God is. Now, Job says in 14 through 20, God is too strong to compete with. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? I can never answer him in court. Whom, though I were righteous, yet would I not answer, but I would make supplication to my judge. He starts off saying this, I'm right, but I would never say that in court. All I would do is plead for mercy before God, which is exactly what happens at the end. He becomes silent. He throws himself on God's mercy and steps away from it. As right as we feel, Job ultimately saying what will ultimately happen, you might feel amazingly right, but you're not going to go to God and tell him you're right. You're going to end up listening and throwing yourself on his mercy. If, if I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice. Even if God would come to court, he says, he wouldn't listen to me. For he breaketh me with the tempest and multiplieth my wounds without cause. And here he's, he's coming after God. He says, God's going to pummel me for no reason. God is unjust. And the idea of coming after me with the tempest is this concept Talking to God is like facing a hurricane and talking to it. Does that do any good? You never hear about the God that talks to a hurricane because he doesn't survive the hurricane. That's the gist of this. God is, is, you can't talk to a storm. It just destroys you. And that's what he's saying about God. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. I can't get a grip, he says. I can't come to grips. This is an honest exclamation to his friends and to God. I can't get a grip on my life. That's not a comfortable feeling. It's a reality some of us face at times in our life. I can't get a grip. It's just out of my hands. I hope the comfort you see from Job is here is a man who is upright and blameless who says to God, I cannot get a grip. I can't get it. All I feel like is God is inundating me in bitterness. I'm in emotional turmoil. That's where Job is. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? God is too strong to be called into court by Job. I can't handle him. No matter how strong I am, I'm not as strong as God. If I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Here's what's interesting. Job feels he is right and justified, but fears his own mouth would prove him guilty, which is actually true. Go ahead and open your mouth and tell God how right you are. Tell God how holy you are. Tell him how sinless you are. 
And now remember, he's upright and blameless. That's how God's defined him. But the fact is, you'll never walk to God and say, God, I'm holy enough to tell you I'm holy. So he's accurate. He's taking the wrong application from it. He says, my mouth will prove me guilty. It would just condemn him. He then goes on blatantly in 20 through 24 to say that God is unjust, which is a bold and false accusation against God. He says, though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul, I would despise my life. He's saying, I'm, I'm blameless, which we know to be true from what God describes him as, but I am so distraught, I can't know what I'm saying. I'm confused and grieving. I hate my life. That's his expression right there. This is one thing, therefore I said it. He destroyeth the perfect and the wicked. And here's his accusation about God being unjust. God destroys both the good and the bad. And, and this is the kicker, if the scourge slays suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. And this is where he gets ugly towards God. He says, when disaster comes, the scourge, God makes a point to laugh at the good who suffer. Not at the wicked. He's saying to God, you attack the wicked and the good. And then when you see the wicked and the good fall before this disaster that comes in, you mock, you laugh, you laugh at me. You laugh at people who do right. And then he goes on. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. And what he's saying is injustice is everywhere, which we see that today. The wicked rule. He covered the faces of the judges thereof. Judges are taking bribes and turning blind eyes to justice. We see that as well. And then this question, if not where, and who is he? Who is responsible if it's not God? And the question is asked in a way that he's saying, who could do this but God? Who could control this way but God? And the whole point is this, and if not him, who else could it be? It closes with him feeling uh, after he blames God, this whole chapter is going to close with him feeling like time is running out. And then he goes to examine three options where we actually land on the mediator option. He actually ends up at the right point in this chapter. And then 10 is a whole collapse again of emotions. He says, now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away. They see no good. And he says, my days are running away, is what he's saying, with nothing good in them. And he's referencing a runner for a dignitary. So a dignitary sends a runner with a message. That runner is supposed to go from dignitary to location and not enjoy any of the sights along the way. And he's saying, that's what my life is like. I'm just running to death and there's nothing good in life. I'm not diverted. I have no distractions. I'm just heading to the worst thing ever, straight to the grave. He says, now they are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteneth to the prey. His life is passing like a boat floating down the river in the rapids. It's as fast as an eagle swoops down to get its prey. It's just over. It's finished. So he, he has this sense of urgency about what he needs to do. And that's what we dive into. From 27 all the way through 35, you deal with three options. And so 27 through 29, Job says, I've got to fix this. Let me try cheerful denial. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. Job is saying, I'll forget about it all and cheer up. I've walked through the stages of grief. It's time to pick yourself up. It's time for you to go ahead and get over it. Job, it's time for you to move on. And he says, I'm going to give it a go. Why don't I try that? Then he says in 28, I'm afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. And this is fascinating. He says, there's a problem with cheerful denial. 
I cannot for fear of my sorrows because ultimately I know God is not okay with me. And I want you to see a switch he makes again, and this is actually an important switch. Job says, I can't deny this and move on because I don't feel secure in my relationship with Christ, with God. And so you see a desire for relationship and not the denial of one. So Job is shifted back. I can't do this because I can't, I don't feel right with God and I, I need to feel right with God. I can't handle that God sees me as guilty. Now that's a lie that Satan has propagated, that his friends keep repeating. And so you see him struggling, but what I want you to notice is he can't take denial because he has to get his relationship right with God. He is driven to be right with God. His direction is correct. Then 30, if I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, and now he goes to option two. Sorry, I skipped one. If, if I be wicked, when they, why then labor I in vain? In other words, if I'm guilty, why am I working so hard at this? It doesn't make sense if I'm guilty. Then he, goes, then he goes on to option number two, which is I need to clean up my act. If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, in other words, I will wash with snow, or the expression in Hebrew might be better translated, I'm going to make myself as white as snow, which David will talk about in Psalm 51.7, and we'll reference that. He says, I'm going to go get myself super clean. And this is what he throws at God. If I clean myself up, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. And it's a, an interesting illustration. He says, if I got super clean, you would push me into a pit that is filled with animal feces and mess, because the word ditch is actually a pit and nasty, to the extent that my clothes would not want to be my clothes. Talk about personification. They would want to get off my body. They would abhor me. It would disgust them. If I get clean, God's going to toss me in the worst place ever and make me dirty again. So now he comes to 32 through 35, and this is his call for a mediator. It is the start of a repeated desire. Chapter 9, chapter 16, chapter 19, he keeps coming back to this, and this is what's fascinating, because it's the only actual recourse that he has that's, that's biblical. And so he's going to start referencing this. 32, for he is not a man as I am. God's not a man that's true like Job is, that I should answer him. And we should come together in judgment. He's actually dead on the money here. And he's going to do that at the end. When God says, answer me, he's going to say, I'm keeping my mouth shut. I've talked enough. So the friends keep telling him to be quiet. Ultimately, he is quiet when God tells him to be quiet. And he's seeing that now. God's not a man. I can't answer him or win an argument. Neither is there any daysman between us that might lay his hand upon us both. Now, he's saying there's no mediator that can come between me and God. And that expression is not just a statement of fact, like there's no mediator, bummer. It's there's no mediator, I want one. That's the expression there. And he wants a mediator, not to push him down, but notice something, a mediator that can lay his hand on God and his hand on Job. Not because they're equal, but the mediator would need to be equal with God so that he could bridge the gap between Job and God. And this is a very clear pointing to Jesus Christ. This is a cry for a redeemer. This is the Messiah who's going to come and it's the first spark of that desire that's in his heart that's coming out again that will be repeated. Then he says, let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. 
He wants him to take the punishment away. He wants to no longer be terrified by it. Going back a little bit to the mediator, you want to see how Christ fulfilled that? Read the book of Hebrews. And it talks about how he suffered for us and he knows our suffering, that he's fulfilled all the requirements that God has. And so you see Job begging for what Hebrews says Jesus Christ did, and it connects through there. And so he goes and says, I want it to be gone. He says, then would I speak and not fear him, but it's not so with me. He says, I want to talk with God. I want, again, you see relational desire again. I want to be connected with God. But then he makes a statement that transitions us perfectly to chapter 10. He says, but I'm not there yet. I'm not there. There's honesty in his suffering. I know what I need, but I'm not there. And then he goes into 10. And this is a complete lament, by the way. And I'll try to work through this quickly. Uh, My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Again, I hate my life. I will voice my complaint. I will voice my bitterness. Verse 2, and I'm just going to kind of work through some of the commentary you read, and I'll say a little bit what it means just for the sake of time. Verse 2, I'll tell God, do not declare me guilty. Tell me what you have against me. That's verse 2. Verse 3, he's going to say this, why are you forming me so vigorously? He's saying, I know trials are going to shape me, but why are you working so hard on me? Why are you chiseling away at me? Why are you, why are you coming in and, and really making me into who you want to be? And then he says, you're rejecting me, but blessing the wicked. Verse 4, all the way through 7, you're going to see different things. He says, um, do you have limited eyesight? Are you like a human and you can only see what humans can see? And then he says, um, do you have limited time? Verse 5, like a human. Verse 6 is, is Job, that thou inquirest after mine iniquity and searchest after my sin. He's saying, I feel the intense pressure of God's investigation, trying to find any sin and making me look guilty. This is where he's, he feels God zeroing in on him. He says, verse 7, you know I'm not guilty, but no one can escape your hand. No one can escape your condemnation of guilt. There is none that can deliver out of thine hand. Verse 8, he goes and transitions and talks about creation again. He starts saying, you've made me and fashioned me, yet thou dost destroy me. And this is important. You personally made me. Job is, is an excellent book to look at creation. You want to know when, the, when life begins? Job is, is crystal clear where life begins. And it's that conception. We're about to walk through that. Made, see the relationship. You made me personally, but now you're going to destroy me? He reminds God in nine, I'm made of clay and you're about to pulverize me into dust again. He says, look, you're handling me too rough. I'm not like you. I'm not made to handle this. You're going to crush me and put me back to where I was. 10 through 12 is an agricultural illustration of how life begins at conception and how God gives life there. It's actually a very good argument against those who would disagree with that. These verses take a look at the formation of a baby with God involved in every stage. Verse 12 closes with God giving life and loyal love to each one. If you, if someone throws an accusation that God is an impersonal God and that God doesn't care for them, Job 10 through 12 is a refutation against that. God is intimately and intricately involved in every human being coming into existence. And that's what Job tells you. He's involved in every process. It shows the intimate and personal connection of God individually to his creation. Job flips it though. 13 and 14, these things hast thou hid in thine heart. He's saying he accuses God of being deceptive, 
of looking like the good and loving creator, but really God was getting close to mark Job as sinful. He was gunning for Job. If I sin, then thou markest me and thou wilt not equip me from mine iniquity. You created me so you could hunt me, so you could gun for me, so you could come after me. And then 15 through 16, he says, if I did some grave wrong, then let your mark be on me. But he's saying, I didn't do anything wrong. And Job says in 15 and 16, I'm a real believer, but I cannot walk with dignity. He says, I am a believer in you. I'm upright and blameless, but I can't lift my head up. He says, because I look or I suffer like the guilty. So you have shamed me, God, even though I'm not guilty because of what I've suffered I look guilty. And what is God confronting? And, and, and this is not the point of Job, but God is confronting an erroneous worldview that even Job held to. When you suffer, you're sinful. And when you're rich, you're right. And it's a very dangerous mindset. And so Job is saying, I can't lift my head up because I'm suffering like guilty people suffer. And God is trying to tell him, hey, you're suffering for a greater purpose in this and your whole worldview is skewed and so is your friend's worldview. And this is, if I did have dignity, you would hunt me down like a lion and prove otherwise. So God is, he's saying to God, even if I lifted my head up, you would just slaughter me. You would show your power and strength. And then 17, it says, you renew your witnesses against me. You increase your anger against me, charges and war are against me. And what Job is saying is you're layering suffering upon suffering as another witness of my guilt. Your, your anger is, is up. You're sending fresh troops into the battle against me. You're growing my problems constantly. And then he asks in closing, why don't you kill me? Verses 18 is a repeated theme. Wherefore thou, hast, thou brought me forth out of the womb, why didn't you let me give up the ghost and no eye see me? I wish I'd died in the wound and never been seen alive. Verse 19, more the same. I wish I was a stillborn and been buried directly. And then 20, he says, um, basically, and not, are not my days few? Cease then and let me alone that I may take comfort a little. This is a cry to God. He says to God, leave me alone. Ease up and let me die in comfort. That's a pretty belligerent shout to God. 21 through 22 is a description of death defined as dark, chaotic, so dark that the light at death is like our darkness. So in other words, there's no light in it. And I want you to get something here. It is not an accurate view of eternity for the believer. It's a picture of hopelessness that Job is doing to prod God along. Now we dive into in the next, hopefully five or 10 minutes, what did Job mean? And I'll move through it quickly. I want you to see a few things. One, God is still Job is still desiring to be right with God. He wants to honor God, but I want you to see what he's, he's saying. I want to honor God. I want to be right with God, but I do not know how to do it, and it looks impossible to me. I don't think it's possible to be right with God. And he's right if you don't have a mediator. And so he's preaching a truth, but he's got a lot of belligerent statements that can confuse on what is truth. But his, his core of his direction is still, I want to be right with God. He says, God is too powerful, too wise to be approached, and God acts arbitrarily with me and all society. But he's not abandoning God. Instead, he longs for an advocate. Is there a daysman between us? Is there a mediator, an arbiter, who can heal and connect him back with God? And of course, we know who that is. Job is begging for Jesus Christ. 
He's begging for a Messiah, which, by the way, is already predicted in Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15. God has already answered Job's question. Job just doesn't know that God's already answered his question. But it's already answered. And so he dives in. Job begins his rebuttal saying this, I want to be right with God. I just don't know how to figure it out. God's too far from me. He's sovereign, yet he seems unfair. And, and understand this. Job is buying the lie that his friends are saying without necessarily attaching directly to it, that God is unapproachable. He cannot see the relationship, which is wrong, and shows the effect of suffering on his life. This is what Job was saying, though. God is the creator, marvelous and all-powerful, but it seems he also shakes everything up. God is so great, yet that means he cannot be touched or reached. In other words, he, he sees God's majesty, but uses it in the wrong way to push himself further from God. God is invisible and elusive, God is transcendent, but Job cannot perceive or feel his presence. Again, negative application to a wonderful truth. God is omnipresent. He's always with you. Job is saying, but I can't see him, and I don't feel like he's there, and so therefore he must not be there. But that's not reality. But we know suffering and pain will cause that. Then he says, God is too strong for me. Even if he would talk to me, he wouldn't listen. He'd still crush me and make me look guilty. And then he goes on to accuse God of being unjust, destroying both the wicked and the good and laughing at the good. God has given the wicked the upper hand and he perverts justice. So Job is lashing out at God. And that drives Job to seek a reprieve. And we see that as we come to um, his desire for a resolution. Chapter 9 closes. Option 1, grin and bear it. But you can't do that. Option two, let me clean up my act. Still not going to be good enough. And he comes all the way down to option three. I need to get a mediator. God's not a man. I can't answer him or go to trial against him. And so I need someone to lay their hand on both of us. And I put here, there's no problem with this option. It's what we all need and should be longing to have. And this is his initial cry that he wants someone to help. He needs Christ. There's not a situation in the world that doesn't need Christ. He's the answer. And Job is highlighting that for us, but he says it's not so with me. And so we kind of come to the close. And Job in chapter 10 is asking, and I'm going to summarize this briefly. Um, he's saying this, why is God against me? Why is God watching me. He goes on, why did God make me and why doesn't God kill me? He is, he's not in a good place. It reminds me of a story I just read um, probably a generation ago. It says a father had bought a cake. His daughter was in, a little daughter was in the hospital, sick with cancer, dying of cancer. The father buys a cake. He's walking down. This is taking place in England, uh, not in the United States. Walking and he sees a church and so it's his little girl's birthday, dying of cancer in the hospital, turns in at the church and decides to pray for her, beg God for her to be healed. Spends time begging for God to be healed, to heal her, leaves the church, goes to the hospital to only find out that his daughter had died a few minutes before. So while he prayed to God for her healing, he missed her death. He wasn't there when she died. Now, the author that was writing the story said this, the father doesn't say the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away in that moment. What the father did was went back to the church, walked in the church and threw the cake at the crucifix. 
and walked out. And let's be honest, if that was you, what would you have done? Probably thrown the cake. And that's where Job is in 10. Job is walking in in this undescribable moment. I can't put my grip on it. I don't understand what's going on. And chapter 10 is him chucking the cake in the church because that's where he's at. He's not at a Job one moment. That's not where we are in his journey here. And thus, when you look at this cry from him, he's basically saying, God hates me and he's oppressing me. Even though I'm his creation, he's after me. Stop watching me, God. And I don't know if you've ever told your kids, uh, I'm watching you. Have your kids ever done enough wrong things that you're like one more and you're, you're done for? Life is not going to be the same for you. We always had the bucket full illustration. Your bucket's full. And whenever we heard that, it was, uh-oh. How do you pour water in a sibling's bucket? You know, that was my thought. Um, doesn't work. <laughs> That's the idea, Job saying to God. Why, why are you, you zeroed in on me? Why are you ready to take me down? And that's the idea. He closes out then at the end. I want God to kill me. That's the death wish again. It's a hopeless view that does not correctly picture death and eternity for the believer. It's not what he's going to face. He's a believer. He's not going to chaos, darkness, and disorder. He's not going to be away from God. But he throws that out to God because he's just torn up. And so he can't even see the beauty in eternity right yet. He ends his response in a bad place. But I don't want you to miss the hope to which he still clings, he's still crying to God for help. He's using an accusatory tone, but he's still crying to him. And one thing we need to pick up from Job is the need to always cry to God. But even more importantly, he's looking and recognizing a need for a mediator, an advocate, someone to stand in between. Job is getting a glimpse of the gospel and the need of all humankind. I told you I'd mention this, but the friends served a fragile God. And as you look at Job throwing these accusations to God, you think, oh man, God is just going to come down on him. Does God come down on Job in that way at all? No. And I want you to realize something, not that God ever condones what Job is doing. He doesn't actually. He reprimands him for it, but he doesn't crush Job for it. And, and the thing is, sometimes we, we, we serve a fragile God, so to speak, like the friends God is. And we think that God is somehow tainted by one person shouting out accusations against him. And, and when you dive into suffering with somebody, they may say things that just are not right with what the Bible says. And I'm not saying you condone them, but I want you to realize something. God is not so fragile that his reputation is ruined by a sufferer's cry. And that's one of the things Job teaches us as well. The friends had a very fragile God. It was like an egg. And if you drop the egg, it's going to crack. God's not going to crack from accusations. He doesn't condone them. And again, I don't, I don't want to be here saying, go ahead and shout out against God. I just want you to realize that in his moment of suffering and in his grief, as he shouted out in confusion, God listened God wasn't reprimanding Job yet. You think, well, God is not there. Well, we know God is there. That's the reality. And so God listened to the whole conversation. And, and he's not so fragile that he can't listen to a sufferer's heart. I put here, there's no doubt that Job's words get off track. He's belligerent and disrespectful. He's angry and lashes out to God. But the direction of his heart is right. He's seeking God. He is desiring a renewed relationship. 
It is not just about the things of this life. Remember, cheerful denial won't work because I want to be right with God. And he's still processing eternity, which his friends have never even thought about. He's still wanting that eternity to be with his maker. Thus, his cry at the end, death is a chaotic, terrible mess. What is he saying to God in that moment? I don't even know if I'm one of yours. And so I'm seeing death the way an unbeliever sees death. But the reality is he's, he's telling us and he's telling God, and we see it through, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and his word, that his desire was an eternity with his redeemer. He wants to be right with God to know his redeemer. He wants to spend eternity with his maker. And that's his constant cry, even when his friends keep preaching a different gospel. And I want you to see this. Job is highlighting the gospel. We need a redeemer. We need someone to, to, to bridge the gap between us and God. His friends preach something different. Eliphaz was the proponent of the prosperity gospel. Serve God for guaranteed gains. Bildad is the proponent of work salvation. You can earn your way. But here is Job seeing something completely different. As Fial notes this, this individual on his ash heap in bitter anger and in desperate agony glimpses the heart of the gospel, an advocate who can lay his hand on both him and God. That's what Job is seeing. I'm begging for Jesus. I put here, can we, in the midst of our tragedy and blinding pain, or let me say this, because not everyone is in blinding pain or tragedy, in the midst of life. Can we, in the midst of life, still catch a glimpse of the gospel and still long for Jesus Christ, the advocate, we all so desperately need? Will we, in the course of life, in every part of life, in the blessings and in the heartache, in the struggles and in the victories, are we always going to be looking for Christ, seeking him that we so desperately need? I put, do not let the lie of a work salvation or a prosperity gospel diminish your fervor in seeing and seeking the gospel truth. And one thing you can know from Job, Job is seeking the gospel truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to dive into Job again and see the wrestling of a man who at times doesn't feel like you're there, that's struggling understanding what in the world is going on, that is lashing out. Uh, not that you condone that, but we recognize, God, you can handle that. It doesn't change who you are. It doesn't defame your character. You are the good and mighty God. You have redeemed us as Job is crying out, looking for his advocate, looking for his mediator. We know you've already promised that mediator before you created this world. You had a plan to redeem us, knowing we would sin. And so as we watch Job struggle and cry out, help us to understand that as we walk through suffering, there's going to be times that will be difficult. There'll be times where it's hard to see you, but that we can go back here and remind ourselves of reality. Help us as we talk to those walking through tragedy, as we talk to your children, as we talk to your church, as we're part of the, the body of Christ, that we will answer as you would desire us to be, to be answering, that we would not use the words of these friends, that we would not be harsh and judgmental, but instead understand how you want to answer them and make sure that our words that are spoken are your words and not our own. Temper us, temper our minds, so that we represent you that we recognize that the only hope rests in your son and his redemptive purpose, plan, and execution. 
In your precious and holy name, amen.